You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? We are good, good to hear. We are in a study in the book of Daniel. It is entitled, entitled Living as Exiles, because that's exactly what Daniel uh, is. That's exactly the situation he finds himself in. You remember in chapter 1, where we saw that these four young men are deported from the land of Judah. They're the best of the best, the smartest, the most intelligent, and they're, and they're assimilated into the Chaldean culture. They're assimilated into this dark, wicked empire called Babylon, and they are entered into this training program. And you think the odds are against them. You think there's no way these guys are going to thrive. There's no way these guys are going to make it. Uh, they're you know, the lone few God-fearers in this entire dark empire, yet we find out in chapter 1 that they actually emerge as successful. By the end of all things, they are the ones, Daniel specifically, outlasts the Babylonian empire. He lives through their, their rise and fall. And we saw that's because he has godly resolve, because he endured testing, and because God helped him all the way through it. And so that's where the background is, that we, that, that's the story to catch you up to where we're at so far in Daniel. And so we enter into chapter 2 today, and you know, this is Daniel's diary of his own life. He's recounting these events that have happened, and you know, something that, that I want you to think about is that the Bible, all of it, it's one book. It's like 66 different uh, uh, smaller books in one library, I suppose you could say. And the whole thing tells one story. This right here, uh, another way to say this is it is literature. I think we forget that. The Bible is a, is a, a work of literature. Therefore, when you go and read literature, uh, there are certain uh, tools that the authors will use to convey their message, to relay uh, what's important to them. And some of these tools, uh, one of them in particular is called a foil. If you don't know what a foil is, a foil is a character who's presented as a contrast to a second character in order to make a point or show how that other character has an advantage over the other character. This is a common tool the authors will use in literature. So think about in Les Mis, there's Jean Valjean and Javert, right? If you know the story, Jean Valjean, he has this entire arc of redemption in comparison to the detective who's out to get him, uh, Javert, who who has this trajectory of demise and resentment. Uh, Harry Potter and Voldemort, Elizabeth Bennet, Mr. Darcy. In literature, there's all these characters that are set up uh, next to each other that show a contrast and make a point. That's exactly what we find ourselves seeing here in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, who's the author, is trying to show us that he has this clear contrast with these other characters in the story that was just read to you. So today in Daniel 2, we're going to pay attention to the characters and try to understand what's going on in their responses and analyze them because each is presented as a foil to Daniel. And when we observe the foil, when we, when we pay attention to it, we will see the message. And here's what the message is. Here's what I want us to walk through together today. Here's the message. When the world is confounded, exiles remain calm. When the world is confounded, exiles remain calm. And I hope today, by God's grace, that we're going to see exactly why that is the case. What does Daniel have that these other men don't have? What are we supposed to possess and believe and bring into the center of our life so that we remain calm when the world's falling apart? 
As exiles, that's what we're purposed to do, to live attractively, to, 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 to embody uh, a certain kind of life that makes the world scratch their heads and wonder to themselves, what do they have that I don't have? So that's what we're going to see. When the world's confounded, exiles remain calm. Before we begin, let's go ahead and bow our heads together, ask God to be with us and teach us. Father, you are all-knowing, you are all-wise, you are powerful, you are sovereign, you are majestic. Your name is above every other name, holy, holy, holy. And so, God, I pray that today, through your word, that you would give us a larger, more glorious vision of you, that we would have a greater understanding of who you are in all of your complexities, in all of your majesty, in all of your radiance and power, that we would be blown away by the reality that you are our God, our God, that you are for us, that you are with us, that you care for us, that you help us. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, deeply encouraged by this story so we could live lives that are calm, that are reasonable, and therefore show the world that there's a different way of life, a way of life that is conducted underneath your sovereign reign. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So when the world is confounded, exiles remain calm. Let's first go ahead and see that illustrated through a few of these characters in this story, when the world is confounded. Let's go ahead and and analyze Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to read every single verse of this long story, and Nathan's done that for us already. We're going to kind of dive in and take a look at some things here and there. But go ahead and go to verse 1, and you see that he has dreams, right? It says he has dreams, and this means either he has the same dream over and over and over again, or he has this intense bit-by-bit dream uh, that's piecing it all together. Either way, this dream is intense, because here, is the most powerful man in the known world at this time. Truly, the most powerful man who's everything at his disposal, most secure man in the entire world at this time, yet he is deeply troubled. This dream is so intense that makes him distressed, disturbed. And so what does he do in verse 2? It says he commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and they stood before the king. Now, these royal officials, these men who stood in the king's court, uh, they all practiced some form of divination, some form of sorcery. They're all a bunch of wizards, okay? So one commentator uh, tells us this, and this is just gonna, to show you how uh, various and how complex and uh, this is. So it says divinations. One commentator says divination played a central role in Babylonian religion. Incantations were used to drive away evil demons, sickness or bad luck, amulets, an image of a god, were used to keep demons away. A whole variety of divination techniques were used to divine the future. Liver omens, lecomancy, which is oil and water, uh, oneromancy, interpretation of dreams, astrology, libomancy, smoke from incense, Sephamancy, casting lots, cledomancy, chance remark of strangers, necromancy, and something called dalagasuri, movements of birds. Now here's what you got to realize, okay? Here's what you got to realize. This is just the cultural norm in this time. Every empire at this time believes in su- is, is extremely superstitious. 
This was just divination was normal. It was universally accepted. This was their assumed method of gaining favor, gaining success, gaining security. This was their method of finding solution. Okay, and we laugh at this. We, we all just chuckled at how just kind of ridiculous this all seems, but we're no different today. We're no different today because we might not consult wizards, but we do rely on medicine. We do rely on technology. We do rely on innovation. We do rely on Wall Street. We do rely on politicians. We do rely on the media on and on to bring about what? The same thing, solution. See, the methods have changed. The sources have changed, but the aim and the goal never has. Our heart never has. There's something in the human heart that when we're in distress, that when things seem like they are out of control, this surge comes out of us longing to just seize a solution. We need a solution. We need a solution so that everything will be okay. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. He's trying to seize a solution. And I want you to notice, though, as we roll through the story, uh, I want you to notice Nebuchadnezzar and what this longing for solution results in for him. You know, what, 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 what happens to him as we roll through this story? In verse 5, it says this. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, This word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. So he wants to know, he wants them to tell him the content of the dream and its interpretation. He, he's, he's, he's skeptical of them. He's skeptical. He doesn't trust them. So he wants them to do the whole entire thing. And he says, if you don't do this, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins, which would include their families inside of it. So the king not only requires the interpretation, but also the content of the dream, or they will be brutally killed and their whole entire families will be demolished. That's one response he has. Then look at verse 6. The very next line of verse 6 says, But... If you show me the dream and the interpretation, you will receive gifts, rewards, great honor. And then when the advisors eventually admit that they can't help, that there's no way that they can possibly do what the king is asking of them. Look what he says in verses 12 and 13. Skip there with me. It says, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all, all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. He literally makes a policy. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So this means Nebuchadnezzar, again, he makes a policy that not just these men in his royal court, but everybody in this trade, everybody, everybody who serves as a royal advisor, everybody who can be found in this category of occupation are going to be killed. This is a systematized massacre that will unroll slowly and publicly execute names one by one. So, Notice something about Nebuchadnezzar here. He starts skeptical, starts critical, becomes very harsh, then extremely hopeful, and then when he's disappointed, he becomes extremely cruel. I mean, unreasonably cruel, which is why Daniel, later on in verse 15, when Arioch, the king of the guard, uh, when they're talking, he says, why is the king uh, so urgent? And the word in Hebrew is literally rash, thoughtless, lacking rationality, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, listen here, this is really what I'm trying to get to. Nebuchadnezzar, because he feels so out of control, because out of him is surging this need to find a solution, Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely commanded by his emotions. Absolutely commanded by his emotions. 
from high to low, from skeptical to hopeful, from, from exacting to just absolutely over the top cruel, everywhere, from one extreme to the next. This is what happens when you and I feel out of control. See, as each new possible solution is presented, then fails or underdelivers, our emotions will take us from cynical to ecstasy to disappointment to resentment to despair then to cruelty. See, as long as we, as long as we require control through the guarantee of a solution, we will be absolutely terrorized by worry, anxiety, and fear. We will live in extremes and we will never be at rest. The need for control, the need for an answer and for solution will always leave us confounded. And when we are confounded, we do crazy things. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. That's one case study. That's one uh, character to keep in mind. But there's also the officials. You remember the officials in the story? Look at verses 7 through 9. What do they do? It's different, okay? They present something differently. It says in verse 7 through 9, They answered a second time <clears throat> and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. I shall know that you can, make, you can show me its interpretation. So after the king refuses to tell them the content of the dream, they persist, they ask for it again, and Nebuchadnezzar reveals two things. He reveals two things about these men. First, they are trying to buy for themselves time. Second, they have conspired to lie. They are dishonest so that, the, so that things pass until the times change. So this problem is no longer a problem, so it just loses its urgency and relevance. Essentially, they are lying and manipulating the king in hopes that his rage subsides and the problem passes. Not that it's solved, not that we find a solution, but that it no longer requires an answer. Here's what the officials show us. They show us a different response to when we feel out of control which is refusing to deal with it, which is living in fantasy, which is choosing not to live in reality, which is choosing to ignore the problem altogether. Nebuchadnezzar is just consumed and obsessed with the problem and needs to find an answer. These men over here don't want to deal with it at all. And listen, that will always make you manipulative. That will always make you dishonest because you have to keep up the illusion. You have to somehow be sure that you don't find your way into the actual reality of things and the actual problem. If you want to ignore it, you have to live in fantasy and you have to live in illusion. So you become dishonest. So you become manipulative. So when we are confounded, are these our only two solutions? Are, they, are these our only two options? To either just be consumed completely and let our emotions just be a train wreck? Or to just ignore altogether and live in illusion and fantasy and negligence? Are these our only options? Well, this is, a, this is a case study. These characters serve as a foil to Daniel. These are not the only solutions. When the world is confounded, exiles remain calm. Let's look at Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel and see another option. Exiles remain calm. Look at verse 14. 
It says, Then Daniel, he replied with prudence and with discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. The first thing we see here is that Daniel is disarming. Okay? What does it look like to be calm? Like, wh- how are we to understand what, what, you know, what, what a person who's embodying calmness, what are they doing? Well, they're disarming. And Daniel here is disarming because he has prudence and because he has discretion. And the word for prudence is very similar to wisdom. This means that Daniel not only knows stuff, information, and knowledge, it means he knows what to do with what he knows. There's a difference, see? There's a lot of smart people who know a lot but are not wise. The difference is knowing what to do with what you know. Daniel knows this is wrong, but he's not just going to come out and say that point blank and rashly and, and bluntly. There's a better way to do it. That's what wisdom calls for. So Daniel's prudent. That's what makes him disarming, but also says that he has discretion. Now, the, the, the very root word, the main word in the original language in that word for discretion uh, is tasty. Daniel's response is tasty, meaning it's attractive. It's able to be received. Daniel's posture, his tone, his chosen words, they all make him disarming. That's what allows him to be able to interact with the chief of the guard who is set out to kill him and his friends and everybody else. He's calm because he has prudence and because he has discretion. He responds with skill and attractively. He's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He is thoughtful. He is not rushed. So he's disarming. That's what makes him calm. But he's also planned. I want you to see that. He's planned because later on you look at in verses 16 through 18. I'm not going to read it, but it says that he makes an appointment with the king. Remember, So he makes a plan. Then he retreats back to his dorm room with his buds. And they, what do they do? They pray. They pray together. They ask God for help. And I'm going to dig into this later, but I just want to say one thing. Maybe the reason why you're not calm at all and life feels out of control, maybe the reason why anxiety and doubt and fear and insecurity just absolutely deconstruct your life and and make your life just a mess is because you don't just slow down and make a plan and then pray. Just slow down and be okay with stillness. Be okay with putting something on the calendar, waiting for it, and as you wait, hit your knees and pray. That might help. That's what Daniel does. That's why he is calm. But the last thing we're going to see, besides that he's disarming, that he's planned, is that he is selfless. He is very selfless. There's another foil here, and it's actually with the the captain, uh, the chief of the guard, uh, Arioch. Look with me in verses 24 and 28. See another comparison here that shows us how selfless Daniel is. I'll read it to you. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch. This is after Daniel receives the revelation from God. He goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and, and said thus to him, What's the first thing out of Daniel's mouth here? Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Keep that in mind. Underline that. Take note of that. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He says, bring me, in, bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste um, and said thus to him. What does he say? What does Arioch say? Is this true? What he's, is this honest, what he's about to say? He says, I have found among the exiles a man from, uh, from, uh, from the exiles uh, from Judah, a man who will make known the king to the king the interpretation. 
Continuing on, it says, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, What does Daniel say? No, I'm not able. <laughs> no, no wise man, no enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show the king the mystery that he has asked, but there is someone who can. There is a God in heaven who can do what the king asks. So notice the comparison and contrast here with Ariok. Notice Ariok uses this opportunity for himself. He wants to present himself as what? Indispensable, as essential. In this time where the king is rash and out of control, you can imagine how tempting it would be to present yourself as somebody who, who should not be on the chopping block, who is indispensable to the entire kingdom. And that's what Ariok uses this opportunity for. He lifts up himself and he minimizes Daniel. He's just a, one of the exiles from Judah that you brought about. That's what, that's what Eric does. He, Ariok does. He takes the opportunity to, to take credit for himself to, for finding the solution. This is in direct contrast with Daniel. Daniel's not selfish at all. He's selfless. He approaches Ariok, and the first thing that comes out of Daniel's mouth is, do not destroy the men of Babylon, the wise men of Babylon. And here's why this is really radical. In Deuteronomy 18, sorcery, divination, practices of the occult, which all these men are doing, this is how they all operated, was totally forbidden by the law. So if you're just like a a law-keeping Jew in this time, these people, they're worldly. These people, they are the others. These people, they are the lawless, the transgressors, they're secular, they're, you know, they're, they're forbidden. Daniel loves them. Daniel is concerned for them. For their, what's, what is motivating Daniel this entire time? It's, he's not mainly concerned about himself. He's concerned for them, even though they are wicked, even though they are, uh, even though they are the other. He concern, he's concerned for them. That's his motivation. And then he approaches Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he's asked if, if he can give the interpretation, and he says No. <laughs> I can't give the interpretation. He's not about, remember how how tempting it would be in this time to make yourself seem indispensable. His head is on the chopping block. But Daniel says, no, it's not about me. I I didn't do it. I can't do it. I can't bring about this solution, but there's a God in heaven who can. He gives God all the credit for it, all the credit. All of this, what Daniel's doing, his conduct it's all in contrast with the characters in this story. The Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men in Arioch. That Daniel chooses his words carefully and deals with Arioch tastefully and schedules a time and retreats to pray. It shows that he is not rushed. He is not frenzied. He is not frantic. He is not dominated by how he feels and his emotions and what if and hypotheticals. He's not panicking. But also, unlike the other officials, he's not refusing to address things. He's not living in an illusion. He's not living in a fantasy. He's not being uh, negligible. He's calm. He's not confounded. Daniel is calm. He is not confounded. And a calm person is disarming. They're disarming. They're selfless. And they're planned. Now, everything we see about Daniel here, 
It's easy to hear this message and say, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's pretty great. But I want you to realize how hard this is. Everything that Daniel models for us is completely counterintuitive, isn't it? His head's on the chopping block, yet he's relaxed. He doesn't flee. He could. He doesn't flee, though. Instead, he approaches the king. He doesn't start a revolt or panic or rally and went up. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He prays. And that Daniel gives God the credit and purposefully refrains from asserting himself shows that he is totally at peace. So Daniel doesn't freak out. He's calm, he's cool, he's collected, he's cool as the other side of the pillow. This kind of person, they're radically different, aren't they? They're just so almost eerie. This kind of person is almost eerie. There's something otherworldly about them. Nothing gets to them. So here's the question we have to ask now. What's the secret? How is this possible? And the answer to that question is in Daniel's response to God when God gives him the revelation. In that long chain of prayer that Daniel writes back to God in verses 19 and beyond, that's our answer. That shows us how it's possible to remain calm when the world is falling apart. So let's go ahead and go there. Let's look to see what Daniel professes about God. What does Daniel believe about God? Verse 19, he says that his God is the God of heaven. He uses that phrase very commonly throughout this whole story, but it's a very important, important phrase. His God is the God of heaven. One commentator as well says this. This helps us understand why this is really important. Uh, this commentator says, in contrast to the Babylonian wise men who worshipped the starry heaven and sought to determine the future by supernatural knowledge through astro- astrological means, Daniel's God was the creator of the heavens and the one holding all the stars and the celestial bodies in place. So what this means, this phrase that God is the God of heavens means this, that God, his God, the true God is foremost, preeminent, supreme. God is God above all other gods. But then he continues on in verse 20 and says, blessed be the God, the name of God, sorry, pardon me, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Now listen, a person only receives praise as long as they are living and as long as they are relevant. That's the only time you ever see anybody getting praise. Nobody here this week, I'd imagine, nobody here praised Alexander the Great. Although at one point in time, he conquered literally the entire known world, but now he's forgotten. Forgotten completely. The most important man in the globe at one point in time is now forgotten. No longer receives praise, no longer receives recognition. But God receives praise forever and ever and ever because he is eternal because he is powerful. So God, what do we have so far? He is supreme. He is eternal. He is almighty. He is powerful. And those attributes, those truths are all now going to get flushed out. They're going to be given full expansion as we walk through the rest of this prayer that he makes. Look at verse 21. He says about God that God changes times and seasons. Now, times and seasons to realize those are fixed realities. <laughs> they pre-exist us. Times and seasons are part of the predictable, unbroken, unmanageable pattern of life. 
They exist before us and they will exist after us. We obey them. They do not obey us. Time and seasons limits us. Okay, we serve them. They do not serve us. Yet, God manages them. Yet, God alters them. What we are completely helpless to influence and must just resign to accept the times and the seasons, they're all in God's hands. In fact, this point is, is, is explicitly illustrated in the story. The advisors, remember, they approach Nebuchadnezzar, and their first words they say is, O king, live forever. A very common phrase in this time to just, I think, uh, uh, grease the wheels and, and uh, suck up to the king. They say, O king, live forever. And then Nebuchadnezzar immediately makes this hasty and impulsive threat and reward to them. Remember that? But it's all very ironic. It's all very ironic. O king, live forever. And then Nebuchadnezzar freaks out. What are we supposed to see there? Why is this ironic? Because Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at this time, he needs immediate solution. He cannot wait. Time is against him. He's trying to overcome time by refusing to wait and threaten his way to an answer, but he cannot. The king who has professed to live forever is actually the victim of limitations. And then when the advisors seemingly cannot give the content of his dream, he says to them, I know you're trying to gain time. I know you're trying to speak lies to me till the times change. Not only is Nebuchadnezzar trying to bypass time, but his advisors are trying to gain time and avoid time. They are trying in their own way to cast off limits and difficulty of time. So this point that God manages what is unmanageable, what is out of control, is in his hands, shows us his power. What we are powerless to do anything about, what we must just accept, God is in control of. He changes times and seasons. And what else? He removes kings and sets up kings. Now look, if you want to find out just how powerful somebody is. You don't set them up against paupers and peasants. You set them up against kings, right? Well, what happens when we set up God against, against the kings of the world? We realize this. Not only, that, not only does he beat them, but they're his puppets. They do his bidding. He sets up kings and he, remove king. he removes kings. In fact, this is what plays out in Daniel's story. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar. Then after that, he removes Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. Then he installs Cyrus, king of Persia. All this is happening according to God's purposes and God's plans. So what we see happening, politicians winning the vote, kings and empires fighting and enlarging But what is really happening, what is really happening all the while is God's purposes and God's plans unfolding according to his might, according to his will. He brings these things about. He sets up kings and he removes kings. And what else? It says he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now look, if you're wise, if you have understanding, you're in a pretty special class. You're you're, uh, creme de la creme, right? I don't know, you're, you're Val Victorian, okay? You can't think of a more self-sufficient, impressive person than someone who has wisdom and understanding, but that person is a student underneath God's teaching. That person is just scratching the tip of the iceberg. God gives wisdom to the most learned, 
God gives understanding to the most accomplished. God can teach the most intelligent, uh, uh, successful person there is. That is how supreme, that is how sufficient, that is how all-powerful God is. And then lastly, it says he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The things we cannot find, he does. The explanation and the answers that we long for and the mysteries we are confounded by, God is not in the least. (sighs) The reason Daniel remains calm, is disarming, is selfless, is planned, not rushed, not panicking, is because he embraces the sovereignty of God. He rests in the fact that God is not limited by anything or anyone. He believes that everything occurring in his life, good or bad, is all, all the outworking of God's hidden plan. So because God holds time in his hands, Daniel is comfortable waiting. Because God holds kings in his hands, Daniel is courageous and approaches the king. Because God holds all knowledge in his hands, Daniel is drawn to his knees in prayer to ask for wisdom and understanding. See, if you have a puny vision of God, if you have a limited, narrow vision of God, if you don't have a glorious, grandiose, complex, majestic view of God, I am telling you, of course you'll not be calm ever. Of course you're going to be confounded and freak out or just try to ignore things altogether. You and I need to arm ourselves with a grandiose vision of who our God is. Our God has no limits. He reports to nobody and everything that's occurring, good or bad, He has good reasons for. He's in control of and we can trust Him. So you don't need to freak out. In your life, if the world's falling apart, you do not need to freak out. In fact, and this might be hard to hear. I know it's hard to hear. Life is hard. But look, if we realize that God is sovereign, we can welcome what God brings about because He makes no mistakes. And the more you believe in the all-powerful sovereignty of God, the more calm you will be, the more you'll glean all your purpose to glean from your hardships, the more capable you will be to take in all the joy and wonder from the good because both are dispensed from the capable, wise, skillful, kind hands of God. So listen, if you're here and you're not a believer. If you're you need an outside looking in, you're curious, you're seeking, you have questions about Christianity, know this. Please know this. Turning to God and building your life on Him is a sure and steady foundation. Turning to Him and bringing Him into the center of your life is going to give you the framework for life that allows you to actually have a pretty good life and flourish even in this broken and messed up world. God God wants to give you that reassurance. God wants to give you that bedrock. And you know what? It's on the other side of repenting and believing that he is king, which means you let go of your agenda, you let go of, uh, uh, of your own moral uh, uprightness, you let go of needing to be somebody, you let go of justifying yourself, and you admit, look, 
My attempts to be in control of my life have only brought about pain for me and pain for others. I am guilty. And so therefore, I take Christ's righteousness, that free gift that God wants to give me, I take it on and I rest in him and I, I trust God with the rest. Can you trust God? Can you trust that if you say yes to him now and each and every day hereafter, it'll be okay, that it'll be worth it? Can you trust that Daniel's God, who he trusted, will be reliable for you? Let me tell you yes, and here's why. Because Romans 5, it says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak and helpless and still in sin, he died for us, which means in God's sovereign plan, according to his purposes. And we, didn't, we didn't even ask for it. We didn't even know it was coming. We didn't even, couldn't even conceive of what we needed. God decided in his own wisdom to come for us. If that is true, if he literally, according to his sovereign wisdom and plan, died for you while you were still weak and in sin and guilty, won't he take care of you the rest of your life? I mean, doesn't it, make, doesn't it only make sense that if he is that invested in you from day one, he's going to sustain you from here on out as you are in exile? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our comfort in life is that God is sovereign from day one and thereafter every day, every day after. So if you're here and you're not a believer, don't harden your heart. Turn today and receive the kindness and the grace of Jesus that is being dispensed to you from God's capable hands. The same hands that hold the stars and time and kings and place are reaching out to you now to befriend you. And listen, if you're here and you're a believer, you need to know this, okay? You need to know this. <laughs> there are more than two alternatives to when things feel out of control. You don't have to be like Nebuchadnezzar who freaks out and is commanded by his emotions. When every new solution and possible option presents itself, we don't need to be determined by every single one and go here to there, high and low, extreme to the next. We don't need to be like that. God, again, there, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his truth, if we, if we embrace it, we can have a pretty good life even in this crazy world. We are meant to embody that. We are meant to showcase that to the world. You have, you have more than just that option. You have more than just the negligence too. You don't have to live in illusion and fantasy pretending like it's all fine, it's going to work itself out. No, life is complex and life is hard. There really are problems, but the solution is not to pretend like it's not there. The solution instead is to do what? To collapse collapse into God. Trust Him and let His sovereignty command your attitude. Let His sovereignty command your actions. When the world is confounded, when the world has fallen apart, exiles remain calm because our God is the God of the heavens and our God sets up kings and removes kings and our God changes times and seasons and our God gives wisdom and understanding even to those who seem like they can't have any more. That is who our God is and that is who we should trust. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a foil. <laughs> Thank you, God, for showing us what, it ought to, what we ought to be like. Thank you, God, for Christ. We know that we have no reason to trust. We wouldn't know you. We wouldn't even have, uh, 
the slightest impression of who you are and the, to the fullest degree, and therefore we wouldn't be able to trust you as we should, as we could, if it wasn't for Christ, who came to us, who died for us, and who is resurrected so we can have the assurance that this world is not our home, and we are meant and destined for another. And we long for that day, Lord. We long for that day where we will see you face to face, and where every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more confusion. (laughs) There'll be no need to trust anymore, because we'll be with you in your presence, and all doubt and faithlessness will be eradicated, and we will enjoy your presence forever. God, we long for that day. Until then, help us, Father, to be faithful exiles. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.